This week on Dig Me Out. I was I just was losing my mind because I was like getting into a song and then all of a sudden it's just a jazz exploration. And... Tim and Jay review Dig by I Mother Earth. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Anichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 183, and you have brought to us a suggestion. You have made your own requested review. I did. And the album you have brought to us this week is uh, its from up north. It's Canadian. It's an import. Mm. And I speak of I, Mother Earth, and their debut 1993 album, Dig. Jay, uh, how did you happen upon the uh, the boys from up north and their debut album? Well, this is an album that I'm not picking because I think it's good. I'm picking it because <laughs> okay, I remember it and always meant to go back and listen to it. And this was an excuse to do that. Oh. So I vaguely remember this band. Um, I associate them with the first wave of uh, like, you know, MTV for some reason, MTV um, alt, alt rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were on one of the late night shows. I mean, it must have been 20 minutes. minutes or something. Yeah. I saw, I remember seeing the video uh, and remembering the name. I, it, I can't remember what other bands so 93, what 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 else was going on in 93? Where are we at at that point? Well, like the second Pearl Jam album, I think, would be 93. Like Versus. So maybe I'm, I'm thinking, like, this is the first, um, I'm sorry, the second wave. The beginning of the, the second wave. Yeah, yeah, it was one of the bands that was, like, the beginning of the second wave. Was the first Our Lady Peace record then? No, that's a couple years. Later? That's 94 or 95. Yeah. I'm thinking 90, 93 is when you get Nirvana's in utero, actually, okay. um, because 91 was the first album. Uh, you get like the the sort of it's it's a weird time period because, you know, uh, Depeche Mode has a big album, Songs of Faith and Devotion. You know, mm-hmm. that's the year that Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg comes out, which was a huge record. You get the first Counting Crows record, August and Everything After. You get, uh, you know... The first, that the Big Lemonheads album is ninety three, so it's sort of a it's sort of a weird uh, transitional, I guess. It's the it's that's the year of Siamese Dream, right? Um, so it's 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 the beginning of I think I think grunge is basically where grunge was like the thing was ninety one ninety two. That's where you get right. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and they like erupt on this the national scene. 93 is when, okay, Nirvana's putting out their second record. Not second record. Their second big record. Their big, you know, obviously they had records before that. Um, but you're getting the big Smashing Pumpkins record. You're getting the big follow-up to um, Pearl Jam's 10. So you had Pablo Honey, the Breeders, yeah. so the Cranberries. You're starting to, it's starting to fracture away from grunge and just more general alternative bands are being you right. know, swept into this 
right. sort of thing that's going on in the 90s, in the early 90s. Right. So, yeah, I just remember it being part of that wave, the, the that first splintering of bands away from a little bit away from grunge, but still very much into new things and experiment, experimenting with new sounds. And I just remember everything. There was a lot of stuff going on that just sounded really fresh, at least for that that year or two. Um, it quickly all became pretty derivative, but there was a span there where if you think about alternative radio, it was pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had like Crash Test Tummies had a, that hit song, which was weird. And the Cranberries were big and Breeders. So you had like, I don't know, you just had a bunch of and Radiohead obviously comes out then. And so this band, I don't know, for some reason, I, I just remember the name. I remember the album cover. I vaguely remember the video. Okay. Um, and even at the time, I'm always meant to like check them out more and just never did. And uh, when we started doing this show, for some reason, it was one of those bands that immediately jumped to the front of my mind in terms of uh, going back and trying to see what, what they were all about. Well, I, I, this was a band that was also on my sort of like uh, peripheral. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up in, in Buffalo, New York, which is right near uh, Canada, obviously with the, with the lake there. Niagara River, um, we got a lot of Canadian artists, and, and the Tragically Hip is like the biggest one in terms of, I think outside of Canada, Buffalo and Detroit are probably the two biggest markets for tra- the Tragically Hip in terms of playing concerts. Sure. Um, you know, in when they come to Columbus, they play a thousand-seat venue. When they play in Buffalo, they play, you know, a, a hockey arena. So yeah. Canadian bands would often play in Buffalo. I remember bands such as I Mother Earth and the Tea Party especially were two bands oh, yeah. that got a lot of play on Buffalo radio stations along with like the Goo Goo Dolls and other stuff in the mid-90s. And they were a band that I always heard but of and might have heard the song on the radio but had no inclination to check out anything else that they were doing. Um, so this was really this is really the first time I've ever listened to them. I, I couldn't. I, I if you had said here's ten songs, pick out the I Mother Earth song, I would have never been able to pick it out, other than just randomly guessing. So, um, this is really, this is really my full first exposure to the band. We should talk some history of I Mother Earth so we can uh, get everybody on the same page who's listening about uh, where this band come from exactly. History of the band. They're from Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. Brother duo in this band, Christian and Yagori Tana. Now, those are not... Christian is Christian's actual first name. Yagori is not his actual first name. It's like Andrew. And their last name is like Kowalski or Kowalowski or something like that. But they both changed their last name to Tana, T-A-N-N-A. I don't know if that's like a maiden name or if it's, I don't know if it's like a shared name of some sort, but um, yeah, that's not the actual name. Um, they were at a rehearsal space in 1990, and they met a vocalist named Edwin Gosel. It just goes by Edwin. And Edwin asked the, the brothers to form a band with him, and they started playing together in 91. And at that point, Franz Massini was, a, was the bass player. And... Uh, over the course of 1991, they uh, put together a five-song demo and played 13 shows over 12 months. It's about one a month. And at the end of the year, there was a bidding war 
uh, between labels. They ended up signing to EMI in Canada and Capital in the U.S. and internationally. In 1992, they traveled to Los Angeles to record their debut album with Mike Klink, who you might know as the former producer of Guns N' Roses. Um, during the sessions for the album, Franz Massini was fired, and Igori Tana recorded, re-recorded all the bass parts by himself. Eventually, Bruce Gordon was brought on to uh, fill in on the bass. Uh, interesting note, Bruce Gordon was uh, just breaking up, or he was in a band that was just breaking up. That band was called Rocktopus. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Rock this caused the, the the demise of Rocktopus? Unfortunately, it did. Oh, what a yeah. tragedy. So the album went Didn't on. Did we play to... with them? <laughs> Rocktopus. <laughs> no, we played with Camarawana. Oh, okay. I'm gonna, I always Rocktopus. get this. And Ever Could Doobie. And Ever Could Doobie. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the album won a Juno Award for Best Hard Rock Album, Juno being the uh, Canadian version of the Grammys, and it beat out the Rush album that was released that year. Um, and then Rush said, hey, why don't you go on tour with us? So then I Mother Earth hmm. ended up touring with Rush for a bunch of dates. And they established a, a lifelong sort of friendship with the band, which ended up in uh, when Elks Lifeson released his solo album, Victor, in 1996, it was Edwin from I Mother Earth who did the vocals for it. So the band released their second album, Scenery and Fish, in 1996. The following year, Edwin quit the band and went solo. He released three solo albums uh, from 1999 to 2006, and he's currently the lead singer in a band called Crash Karma with former Our Lady Peace guitarist Mike Turner and Jeff Burroughs of the Tea Party. So this is basically a supergroup of Canadian alternative 90s rock bands. Right. And they've released two albums, one in 2010 and one in 2013. Uh, they released a compilation album in 2001 called Earth, Sky, and Everything in Between. And then in 2003 with new vocalist Brian Byrne, they released the album Quicksilver Meat Dream. It was at that okay. point the band went on, to, went on hiatus. However, 11 years later in January of 2012, they announced that they were getting back together. And in March of 2012, they released the single, We Got the Love. And they've been playing uh, shows ever since then uh, with no word on whether there'll be a new full-length album or additional new recordings. So that is the history of I, Mother Earth. If you'd like to suggest an album for us to review, uh, please make sure to visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. So, Jay, we did get some Facebook feedback on this record. Sam Kogel said groovy. And Scott Russell Halgrim chimed in with a few comments. He said, in my collection filed right next to another band you covered, I Love You, which we covered uh, last year, I believe. This is so 90s. Songs are long and rambling, a la Jane's Addiction, with a hippy-dippy jangly groove that turns heavy, a la Mother Love Bone. Song titles are like, are the experience and the universe in you. He's like, oh, good God. And I leave this out where guests can see it. And then he said, <laughs> final comment was, upon revisiting, definitely betrays itself as an example of early 90s, deeper than the D-Blue-C jam blues groove rock. But still I like it. 
spesh the heavy parts. I don't think that's what he meant to write there. Special, oh, especially the heavy parts. Gotcha. So there's the Facebook uh, feedback on this. So just so everybody is aware, so it's Edwin on vocals. This is the uh, the original lead singer. Uh, Yagori Tana on guitars, backing vocals, and then he played bass on the record, although Bruce Gordon is credited as playing bass. Christian, his brother, is on drums. And then they have two extra percussionists, Louis Conte and Armando Borg. And then they have Mike Finnegan listed as the Hammond organ player. So that is the... And then Mike Klink, obviously, which we mentioned, who's done a lot of production work, most famously with Guns N' Roses, is credited with producing the record. So that's everything you need to know about this record, Jay. Let's go. Klink has got a pretty cool resume. Yeah, he does have a pretty cool resume. Uh, I will just throw one additional in there to think about. Um, He produced Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. So there's that. So pretty much he could have just wrapped it up at that point and said, I'm, I've done everything I can do. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Metallica and Justice for All. So yeah, he's got a really, there. really strong resume. And you're mentioning, you know, we've we've mentioned Guns N' Roses, Metallica. Those lean on the heavier, harder rock side. Yes, yes. Uh, across the board, his production you know, tends to be with heavy, hard rock bands. There's not a lot of alternative in there. You know, Triumph, Megadeth, UFO, Molly Crew. The baby's heart, any money, you know. There's not, there's not much there in terms of uh, outside the you know, rock bands trying to write hits and big riffs. Right. So interesting choice for this band. Yeah, and I wonder if it's the the band that chose him or if it was the label that hooked them up together. Mm-hmm. The Good label question. heard something in the original demos and thought that Mike Klink was the right uh, person to go well, work with. Well, this band certainly, uh, there's they have they have the chops, and they have the ability. There's some talent here. Um, there's definitely some, you know, eighty style guitar guitar tones, and it's very reverby. Um, so I could see them being, you know, enamored with a producer like that. Um, not necessarily. Uh, and at that time, there weren't a lot of alternative sort of music producers that were known. I mean, there were a couple and those were you know, pretty much unattainable. So um, you're, cho- you're choosing from from guys who, who had worked in very different kinds of music up until that point. Yeah, I mean, even like Brendan O'Brien was not established at this point because he didn't do the first Pearl Jam record. Right. So it's by, you know, we're talking 93. Brendan O'Brien's name is not you know, connected to all the bands that he would work with in the 90s. Same thing with, like, Nigel Godrich or any of these guys that you think of as being, like, the big producers of the 90s. They had they had not established themselves yet as those yep. sort of go-to guys for big alternative rock albums. So let's exactly. talk what we liked and what we didn't like about this record, Jay. Mm-hmm. Um, since you brought it to the table, I mm-hmm. will go first. And since we're talking about Mike Klink, I will start with one thing that I liked, which is the sound of this record. Um, It's very big. It's crisp. Um, You get sort of it's it's in that weird vein, which we've run into a couple records where it still has the production elements of an 80s metal record or, or a hard rock record, even though it's sort of transitioning into the 90s sound 
So I think what they're what Mike Klink does really well is bring the guitars into a slightly more modern um, sound while still retaining their hard rockness, if that's a way to put it. Um, you know, it's not this overly drenched in reverb um, 80s metal sound, but there is a, a slight tinge of it. And I think that that was probably pretty calculated in the sense that, you know, this is a band that can appeal to people who are into hard rock, people who are in alternative rock, people who are into progressive rock. And it doesn't go too far into any of those one particular, into those particular genres. And it's really because of the production of that guitar, because you could have scaled that back, made the guitars a lot drier and, and get, gotten the reverb off. Um, and it probably would have alienated some of the more like hard rock fans who would listen to this and think of it as sort of a, you know, noodling alternative album and not in the same vein as say, um, you know, there's some slight progressive elements to this that you could draw comparisons to like a dream theater or, or at a lesser extent, like a King's X and the the, uh, percussion element of this as well. Um, he does a really good job of, obviously this is a band that is working in a very big palette here. This album is like 67 minutes long and, um, the songs are all like five to seven minutes long. They're not like writing concise little pop songs, but he's able to, when you're dealing with the extra percussion, he's able to bring it in in such a way that I don't think it necessarily would drive anybody bonkers in the same way that if you're like listening to some alternative rock, they tend to overkill it because, hey, yeah. we've got a bongo player. Let's put him on every track. Um, I think they're able to, I think he, I think he, in his production work and as the producer, probably rein that in a little bit to make it a little more appealing as a, um, alternative rec- record um, and not go too far to the progressive side of things. Um, so I think the, and to start out with the one thing that I liked, I'm saying Mike Klink is the guy who helps make this band what they are. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring him up because uh, on this record, I think he's a miracle worker. <laughs> he, he takes music that I, I don't know, if you take the parts they're playing and this I guess what they're trying to do, I typically would not like this. But it's produced in such a way that it sounds big and full. So, for example, you know, when you do, so they, there's slap bass all over this, right? And slap bass is known for, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of notes being played. You're getting, you know, a popping sound from slapping the bass, which creates additional rhythm. Um, when you play bass that way, you take up a lot of the space of the mix. There's not a whole lot of room for other instruments to do much. So that's why in that case, usually, you know, guitar wise, you'll hear guys do more of like a walk to walk, you know, kind of, what do you call that? Wawa pedal kind of Wah-wah. effect or yeah. something that like uh, makes it a little bit higher. It's simpler. It like separates it out so that the bass can carry a lot more weight. They kind of do that, but they also do a lot of like very layered guitar stuff that with accents and counter melodies and chords and it's amazing to me. And then you throw in this additional percussion and an organ. (laughs) Um, It's incredible when I listen to this record that it still sounds like tight and together and it makes sense. It takes 
back to my original point, it takes even the guitar tones that they're using. Um, I think in most cases they would tend to be really thin, but somehow I don't know how they're doing it, but they're not like there's, there's depth and dimension to the, to the middle, to the clean and to the middle, like um, kind of dirty tones mm-hmm. that I think with a lot of other bands would get really flat, you know, when you're playing kind of funk oriented stuff, you know, the guitar tends to get really like thin and not very dimensional. Um, I don't know if it's double tracked or it's just the amp they're using, the miking techniques, but there's a richness to it that's really nice and actually kept me into this record. Um, so I'm with you, the production, the en- maybe even specifically the engineering. Because production-wise, I, I think that starts to get into, um, you know, editing songs and having a little bit more say in, like, the craft and the presentation of the songs and... Uh, I think there could be a lot more work done there, but I think the engineering side of it uh, is is pretty incredible. Yes, I agree. And probably your your folk your um differentiation between production and engineering is probably the the key there, um, because in terms of what I didn't like, it's pretty much everything else. <laughs> um, and, and I think Mike Clink is more I know he gets production credit but I think he's more of an engineering oriented producer yeah you know I don't know on like Appetite for Destruction if he was working with them that much on the, those you know the songs I think he was just trying to capture what that band sounded like which he did obviously incredibly well yeah and I would imagine that Guns N' Roses at that time might have been a little sloppy live because of what they were this the energy and the speed they were playing and he probably had to try to capture sort of a, a very you know you're not dealing with digital tracks you can manipulate in 1987 or 86 when that album's being recorded um yeah. he, he's trying probably trying to you know just rein in a performance with regards to this record uh he's also trying to rein in a performance and a performance that's to me sounds derivative of a number of bands one to, one of which is Jane's Addiction there's a lot of Jane's Addiction in the vocal, in the playing, in the songs. There are parts of songs, like in Not Quite Sonic, where I swear to God I'm hearing like Jane's Addiction vocal riffs. They're just straight off of Nothing's Shocking or um, or a Ritual. Uh, I just, his vocal, not on every song, but on a lot of the songs, he gets into Perry Ferrell territory and just... yeah. Really, really, it's hard to, um, not that I don't like Perry Farrell, it's just, I've heard it. Like, I don't, I, that, that's a very specific style of song, of, of singing, and it just sounds yeah. like very blatant.
The other thing I, I just could not. Well, there's another. There's a couple things, but the ba- you mentioned the bass, the slap bass. Jesus, I was I wanted to punch the guy, especially on like pro- the song six production. It just like starts out. You know, it's like a Les Claypool Primus lead in, and um, there's a bunch of songs where the bass just like I don't know what the other guy was doing, the France guy, but I don't really care for what they he redid his his bass parts with because when he's just playing the chords and or or playing along with the chords or or playing along with the with the, the bass drum and keeping things locked down it's fine but he goes off on these like just ridiculous uh, slap bass tangents that just drive me insane and then you combine that with these like soft jazz interludes that'll come into songs and like yeah. uh, lost in a lost my america has this really cool opening riff and then it turns into like a pat metheny song or something like it's just not, i don't know <laughs> It's like, I'm gonna have to go listen to him. I don't even know what that means. I think, uh, or or Larry Carlton it was stuff my dad listens to, like <laughs> like like these like jazzy like. I was I just was losing my mind because I was like getting into a song and then all of a sudden it's just a jazz exploration and yeah I I did not I did not like when I, I here's a, here's the thing for a band that you know for pretty much the entire record spends their time between four and a half and seven, six and a half minutes. There's, there's one song that's about eight minutes and no one's seven, but for the most part, they're at the four, four and a half to five and a half or six and a half minute long song. Keep these songs. Like I understand there's, these are got really talented brothers and there's a lot of stuff going on in these songs, but at some point it would have been nice to have like a song that sort of, Okay, this is the song that's just gonna rock out, or this is a song where we're gonna do some bluesy jazz stuff. But like throwing that into almost every song, just like I could never get a grasp of an, a feel for an entire song. Like I just for like for one song, it would have been nice to just hear like three minutes of them just blasting through a song instead of having to do the jazz breakdown or you know what yeah. have you, or the or the long intro which builds in from out of a, a jazz intro. Like I just. It just grated on me, and I, I, you know, combine that with sort of like somewhat. And I understand this is a debut record, so you're going to be, you know, a little bit more derivative to your influences. But you know, I, I read that this was a band that is hugely influenced by Rush, and you can hear that in, in sort of the progressive elements of the band, but not in the sense that you know when you listen to whatever Rush albums they were listening to, which I would imagine are like the, the sort of the the key 80s ones, you know, you hear a very, you know, original developed band. When you go back and listen to the first Rush album, you hear a band that's trying to be Led Zeppelin. And it's it's driving, you know, driving towards a very generic 70s rock sound. I wish they had learned from that and said, you know, we're going to, we're not going to just regurgitate our influences and write a Jane's Addiction slash Rush, you know, progressive rock, alternative rock album. And they had, sort of gone off on a little bit more of their own territory. Um, but unfortunately yeah. they don't. And it drove, it really kind of drove me nuts after a couple of listens. Yeah. I mean, Rush, they go in different places, obviously they're a progressive band, but it's all with purpose. This sounds meandering. This sounds like jammy. Yes. Like you, they never would have played this the same way twice. 
either it happens in intros, it also happens like predictably after every second chorus, you know, where the bridge is, it'll either go into a long extended bridge or it'll just, the song will just continue on with this other meandering, jamming kind of thing. And you're just have no interest. I mean, I don't know unless you're incredibly high or at the show, I don't know who would, who, who wants to hear that? You know what I mean? It's just not a long, I'm not against long songs. You know, I love some rush stuff. I love a lot of progressive rock bands, but they, every note they play is measured and considered, you know, I mean, you may hate that approach, but you never, you know, get five minutes into the song. Like, Oh geez, dude, they don't even, you know, they're just, screwing around like right rush is not screwing around they might be doing some things that you may not like but they're not screwing around like they have a vision of where they're trying to go with every note played and every minute of every song so um you definitely don't get that from this band it's just a lot of like messing around with effects messing around with variations on the riff right um the word that came to mind was aimless for me yeah it just it, I, like you should be hitting a target, and there and there's no target to hit. Like it's just jamming for the sake of taking the song from five minutes to seven minutes, which I don't need. That's not that's not my bag, man. Right. Struggle with the singer. Um, it's either he, he's just never able to find himself. He's in the Jane's Addiction area a lot. He also tends to sing really in a really throaty unnatural way like it doesn't it sounds like he's like putting on a voice um not really just genuinely you know singing from his lungs it sounds like more like yeah you know he's down in like the throat area trying to like create some cool sounding vocal you know it's hard to relate to that it's hard to it doesn't connect as well it just sounds right slightly disingenuous and then you know i think a lot of the james addiction stuff vocally is just one is the the approach to the melody, so it'll be like um, short phrases in the verse, so you know more choppy, a lot of more words, and then when they get to the chorus, then it's just long phrases, you know, less words. It's like, oh, here's the chorus. I'm gonna use less words and hold notes longer. <laughs> like, well, chorus needs a little bit more than that, you know. And then song wise, there's just no songs here, you know. Rainwell Falls gets close to something, but I mean, that's that was their single, and it's five minutes and 19 seconds. Video version was five minutes and nineteen seconds. I, I don't know what. 
I can't believe MTV even played that. Like, <laughs> Jesus, you know. And then it has like that Santana breakdown. Yeah, you Santana know. was a band that I kept thinking of. I'm like, oh my god, these guys kind of sound like Santana for God's sake. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, with this, the quiet parts were either smooth jazz or Santana. So you, you, they come in with like a really cool riff, and then it would end, and they would go into the smooth jazz part, like you were saying, or the Santana sounding thing. And I'm like, what in the world are these guys doing? And, and, and I'm trying to remember, like, what would I have thought of this? Because Rain Will Fall is pretty up-tempo the whole way through, and I think that's the right. song that I remember. But I'm like, wh- what would I have thought of this band even then? Like, I, would I have called it out as smooth jazz at the time, or was I? were we in a different headspace at that point, and would it, we have been more open to the super pristine, you know, like, clean guitar noodling over, like, really, you know, clean, sharp-sounding bass? and Well, I didn't know you in 93. Percussion over top and... But I can't well, imagine that, that would have gone over well because, <laughs> you know, I, I've known you probably, what, since the 97, 96, 97. So never in my time knowing you, have you ever <laughs> have you ever been like, I really dig that, that jazzy breakdown. <laughs> but was there a, like, I meant more universally, us as music listeners. Okay. Was there something going on that where anybody would have heard that and thought like was was this um cuz uh like j- jam music kind of took off in the 90s, right? Like fish weren't around in the 80s, were they? No, and they that were, whole scene like no. widespread panic and all those bands didn't and they start Mo in the and, early 90s yeah. too and Yeah, it's all it's all yeah. early 90s to mid 90s that's when that all took off and 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 Dave Matthews was a part of that, you know, even so though Dave f- Matthews was song oriented at the beginning, they were always, you know, able to do these like long sort of musical interludes. Right. Were, were those, I mean, when those bands started, they were just bands. There was no like jam scene. Well, there was Grateful, Grateful Dead. Dead and I mean, that, but, that I mean, whole they pretty much counterculture. But they pretty much owned that at the time. There was nobody else that really. I think there was always the a subculture 90s. of, of, you know, traveling sort of hippie-ish acoustic hookah, you know, that those sorts of, uh. I think there's always been people, thanks to college students and marijuana, that have always been into uh, sort of jammy. But a- from a recording standpoint, it's it, I don't think it really caught on until the Fish, Dave Matthews. Those bands started to sell records in ways yeah. that I don't think, you know, the Dead, the, well, not the Dead, but the people, the bands that like sort of emulated the Dead, but were never really successful as the Dead did right um so anyway was there a a part of this band that was maybe trying to do that i guess you know, it's I don't just know. weird because there's there's elements that are so heavy uh those audiences wouldn't have not have liked it but i can't i'm just trying to make sense of this this lighter jazzier part of these a lot of these songs and trying to figure out where they're coming from on that stuff i don't know because i i you know i i went onto their website to to get their history and stuff like that and there were mentions of like, you know, uh, you know, check out the the four hour long legendary concert reunion concert, and I'm like, four hours, four hours, holy god! I don't want to hear Blood Zeppelin play for four hours. I got shit to do. <laughs> 
four who hours? wants to listen to any band play for four i love a lot of bands i don't want to ever right. hear them yeah. play for four hours <laughs> give me right. a, give me your best 45 minutes to an hour and blow me away i could do i could do 90 minutes okay maybe 90 minutes but like really four hours i mean i've, I've had relationships that lasted less than <laughs> less than that we won't go that far that was a long time yeah. ago. Anyway, I think that that does appeal. I think that there are people who that does appeal, and I think that those people are into progressive rock. And I think that that's where this band's ultimately sort of maybe found their niche. I haven't listened to the second record, so I don't know if they continue down this path or if they streamline it and become more of a, of a song-oriented band. Yeah, um, you know, I could. As I'm doing right now. Now, easy way to you hear me clicking around. So what I'm doing (laughs) is I'm going to their Wikipedia page, and so I look at the second record, and the times are 440, 524, 405, 547, 527, 756, 5, 545, 555, 516, 706. So they didn't learn anything. They still are. are, These are all five and a half minute long songs. So they didn't really change anything. They have a different percussionist. Uh, joining oh. them, uh, Louis Conte was was now joined by Daniel Mansilla on the second record. The second album isn't on Spotify, unfortunately. Oh, apparently there's a third record I didn't know about. Um, it's called Blue, Green, and Orange. It came out in '99. Mm-hmm. That's not listed on their main page. It says that the album, while still in the vein of their prior jam-oriented albums, was mellower and offered several twists. These included tribal rhythms. Oh God, that's not a twist. Computerized this record. Computerized loops, instrumental oh. elements similar to modern indie rock, and oh. the debut of Brian Byrne on lead vocals. Oh, yeah, this can get even more like six minute, six minute long songs. The tribal stuff on this record was, it was one of the things that was killing, like killing the record for me. Um, I kind of was going along for the ride just because I was enjoying the production so much. Uh, maybe through five or six songs, but by the time you hit to the middle of the record and then the end, those long, drawn-out tribal beat things and the addition of the percussion, I just couldn't take it. I just hear that stuff, and I just can't I can't delineate one version of that from another. So all the songs just start to blend together. Like, I don't... I don't know. Maybe Maybe I need to study world music, but, like, when I hear that tribal rhythm thing... I just, I can't, it doesn't sound like a different song when I hear it again. It just sounds like the same damn song again. I just need to point out something that is mind-blowing. So their fourth album came out in 2003. It's their last album. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called The Quicksilver Meat Dream. In true progressive rock fashion, one of the tracks, track 10, has four subtracks, like it has broken into four parts, like oh, you would God. on a Rush album. So the track mm-hmm. is eight minutes and 19 seconds. It's called Meat Dreams. Uh, the first part is called Umbilical Transmissions, oh. which is very progressive rock. <laughs> part two is called We Be Nine. Part three is called That's Quite an Erection, Eric. Oh, and part four is called Blondes and Bluster. And that's followed by a nine-minute track called Passenger. So they so, just were getting weirder. Yes. They were getting like uh, more like um, uh, Zappa. 
just saying, the, just saying, screw it. We're just going to make up <laughs> just dark modern metal nonsense. with industrial elements. That's the description in Wikipedia. Yeah. What the? At times, the greatest emphasis on progressive rock, pro- progressive rock to date. What does that even mean? So they got it, they even got more progressive. And it was produced by uh, David Bottrill, who has worked with Robert Fripp, Tool, King Crimson, uh, Dream Theater, Muse. All right. Well, you know what? Like, maybe that's maybe that's a better direction for them. Right. Um, I was going into this more as a alternative rock song oriented album. And it's not that It, it sort of feels like it wants to be that, but it's just not there. So maybe it's best that they just go into a jam it direction, jam yeah. progressive. Maybe that's what. Maybe next. This was a, a progressive rock band that hadn't progressed yet, yeah. fully. There are elements right. of it, and that's fine. But they're really not an alternative rock band. At the end of the day, they're a progressive rock band, and that's a much different beast when you're coming at it towards song analysis and, you know, breaking everything down. So. Right. But for me, I'm going to wrap it up on my end by saying I did not like this record. At, <laughs> After at all that. It sounds good, but I don't like it. I don't yeah. like the songs. I don't like the vocals. I wanted to punch the guy playing bass, and I wanted to drop kick the guys playing uh, percussion. And that's all I yeah. have to say. It's... um. When you're like I said when I started, when you're playing bass like that, you're you're eating up a lot of the song. Uh, think about um, the Chili Peppers. Okay, I'm not a huge huge fan of that band, but they understand how to make that format work. So the bass is he plays. It's not quite this busy, but it's the same style. Right. And they augment that with you know a pretty simple drummer and a pretty simple guitar parts. You know, the guitar, they always have a really good guitar player, but, you know, they're they're letting the bass carry a lot of those songs, and then the vocal, you know, is a big part. So the guitar and the drums really are complementing what's going on bass-wise and vocally. You don't need to add percussion on top of that and, like, five guitar tracks and an organ. <laughs> it's just... And then the, dr- the drummer's really busy. Uh, there were there were some songs on here that I think had they been simplified down, and this is where the production comes in. You know, I think if maybe if Mike Clink was a little bit more hands on, or if they got a producer that was a little more hands on, they may have you know talked them into like let's really focus this. Let's let's make mm-hmm. sure you understand these two parts. You know, because if you really listen, they're in there, and there's kind of a hook or at times melody buried in there, but you can't even hear it because there's just so much other. There's, you know, so much other stuff going on. And I don't mean you can't hear it in terms of it's muddy. It's just you can't hear the essence of the, you know, the melody. Um, right. Because there's so many layers. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. It's a, I'll jump to my rating. It's, it's a single for me. Um, yep. It's something like in an overall 90s mix, it'd be kind of cool to have one of these songs thrown in, you know, just for perspective. And I think I would enjoy it as a one-off track. Um, but you get even EP wise, you get into three, four, five, six songs and you're, you're, you had enough pretty fast. 
I would do uh, Rain Will Fall as my single with uh, Not Quite Sonic as the B-side to my single. But I would ra- ask for radio edits <laughs> of both of those songs and get them down to like four minutes. I'm, there's at least a minute of each song you could chop out. Yeah. I noticed even like a song like uh, The Universe and You, they, I think it's 6-8 timing they're using there. Mm-hmm. Even that was like a breath of fresh air because it, it they couldn't go into that standard like funk rhythm thing, tribal rhythm thing because it was six eight. They had to just play with some swing and it brought out a whole other side of the band, which was refreshing to hear. also made me realize like this type of music like these the, like those bass lines and we mentioned there, there's a ton of notes in there but when you really listen to it what it's based on is like they they hit the root note and then they throw in another all this other bullshit and then they hit the root note again so what ends up happening is that the guitar and everybody else just plays off that root note so really you don't get any chordal like changes if you kind of sit back and like kind of blur your ears a little bit that makes sense like just mm-hmm. li- just listen for what that what the you know the core the, what the chord is being played in a lot of cases in a lot of these songs it's like one note essentially through the whole verse because it's like that first note is all you really hear because you know they always hit that first note and they let it ring and then they play the other parts well, that first note just keeps ringing through the whole thing. So that ends up being like essentially the chord. Right. So if you really step back and listen, you're like, well, shit, they're just amid all this noise. Really what they're doing is just playing the same chord for the whole verse. <laughs> you know, like Tony Lily, like, like that's all I'm hearing. Right. Um, I like to hear, you know, this chord move into that chord and move into this chord and sort of change but the way I feel based on those chord changes. And with this kind of music, you don't get that. You just kind of get one note and a bunch of other noodling. Um, you get a lot of rhythm. There's a ton of rhythm here. The bass playing rhythm, the drummer playing rhythm, guitar players playing rhythm. They got percussion on top that's rhythm. You know, you got layers and layers and layers and layers on top of each other of rhythm, but you don't have that just very basic chord structure that I think just musically is something I just need to have. So if you're going to pick a song for your single, what would it be? 
So gently we go, I think, because really, hmm, okay. Well, uh, rain, rain will fall, but maybe the B side because vocally it's a little different. He's more laid back. Uh, they actually do a harmony. I don't know who's doing the harmony, but uh, it just makes him get out of the uh, Jane's addiction stereotypical, like what you right. do over funk guitars in an alternative scenario kind of vocal. So I think that's probably my other song. Well. You know, this is the band that ended Rocktopus, so we'll never know what could have happened with yeah. Rocktopus thanks to My Mother Earth. Right. But, um, we'll Maybe they were in better. Our hearts and our minds. And uh, that's two decent singles for Jay and I. That's a uh, That's been a long time since we both agreed to dislike an album as much as we disliked this one. And uh, Jay... Uh, you have you have sunk us to a low right now. We have to recover next week. I believe we're going to have some requested reviews coming up, and hopefully that will uh, rebound us. Dig us out of this ditch. Yeah, exactly. And if you would like uh, to dig I, us out of this ditch, uh, Jay, you can always try to come back with something better. I know. I uh, I got experimental on us. You did. And uh, it, it backfired. I'm sorry. It did. I'm sorry. It backfired. If you like what you heard, I don't know how you could have, but if you did, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes, and if you want to request a review, uh, head on over to uh, digmeuppodcast.com and request a review at our request a review page. Uh, I want to thank everybody for checking us out at all of our various locales, Radio IO, Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, what have you. You heard what I said. We'll be back next week with a requested review more than one coming up. So buckle in. Get ready. We're going to take you on a ride of requested reviews. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.